Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. When I say the word mystery, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's 221B Baker Street, the uh, residence of Sherlock Holmes. Maybe it's Angela Lansbury, or Matlock, or Perry Mason. Or maybe it's Fred, Daphne, Shaggy, Velma, Scooby-Doo. Whenever the word mystery comes to our mind, we hear it, we read it, we think about an unsolved murder, a cold case, a hidden affair, some intrigue or espionage. That's what comes to our mind. But as the New Testament was being written back in the first century, and Jesus and Paul and John used that Greek word, it would have brought to the mind of the listener and the reader a much different idea. And that is our subject for this afternoon. The word mystery comes to us from the Greek word mysterion. It's one of those transliterated words. And it just means a secret rite, something secret, or any secret. But when one who spoke Greek read that word, what would have most likely occurred to them was what were known as the mystery religions. They're sometimes called the mysteries. They're sometimes called the mystery cults, depending upon what you're reading. These were secret rites by which selected individuals were brought into a special relationship with a deity and assured of certain benefits. And by the time that Christ walked the face of the earth, they were scattered all throughout the Greco-Roman world. They were nearly universal. These mystery religions largely grew out of a dissatisfaction with the Greek and Roman gods. And let's be honest, who can blame them? These gods were powerful, but they were impersonal. They were the poster boys and girls of immorality. They were cruel. They were adulterous. They were deceitful. They were warmongers. They were greedy. They were liars. And we could just keep on going, couldn't we? One man wrote, it was not that the Greeks became so depraved that they abandoned their gods, but rather that the gods became so depraved that they were abandoned by the people. Any thoughtful person with any sort of moral compass whatsoever found these Greek and Roman gods to be repugnant. That's, like, that's why men like Plato and Aristotle spent time seeking some higher being, some good, because these guys that these people worship are ridiculous. They're immoral. They're horrible. And so out of this dissatisfaction grew these mystery religions. They generally centered on a single god or goddess, the Eleusinian mysteries were the most famous. Those were centered around Demeter and the harvest time. By the time of Jesus, Dionysus, the Dionysian cult, was the most influential in the West. The Isis cult was the most influential in the East. Even though these two cults dominated, there were in each locality, each region, though, little mystery religions, depending upon where you lived. It was almost like people were seeking their own personal religious experience, their own individual religious experience. 
Now one of the benefits that these mystery religions offered was they offered their initiates a secret knowledge. The myths behind these mystery religions are well known. They were for the general consumption of the population. But what they offered once you were initiated was some secret that had been given purportedly by a god to man and then once you were brought into this mystery religion was passed on to you. Once you received that knowledge, you swore an oath that you would not share it with anyone, and if you did, you would lose your life. And for that reason, we don't know much about the secrets of these mystery religions, virtually nothing. Maybe a few little references in Aeschylus and some other poets and play, playwrights from the Greek and Roman world, but very, very little. It's, a lot of it's just guesswork. They kept their promises or they died. One of the appeals of the mystery religion was that it soothed the soul, it nourished the soul, and this was something that was lacking in the Greek and Roman religions at the time. They offered an intimacy with the divine that you couldn't find in worshiping Zeus in the pantheon. They offered a fraternal spirit among believers that you couldn't find in that major religion. They offered a forgiveness of guilt. This is a very interesting aspect to them. There was a growing realization in the centuries leading up to Jesus that there were wrongs in the world, that men were guilty of doing wrong things, and that some method of forgiveness needed to be sought. And these mystery religions offered that. They offered a sense of security in a world that was viewed as being ruled by fate. We're going to talk about fate a little bit more tomorrow in my lesson, if God is willing. Basically, fate means that whatever is going to happen in the future is going to happen regardless of what choice I make right now. And living in that sort of world made a life seem out of control, unstable. And what these mystery religions provided was a sense of security. Some of them also offered the prospect of life beyond the grave. And once again, when you're living in a world that largely believes that once the body dies, that's it, that would have had real appeal. So why? Why did men like Jesus and Paul and John use this word, use this concept as a means of spreading the gospel to the world? Jesus uses it in the parable of the sower in all the synoptic accounts. He also uses it later on in the first chapter of the book of Revelation when he talks about the mystery of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. John uses it later in that same book in chapter 17 where he's looking at this woman riding on this beast and her name is Mystery. Right? Babylon the Great. The mother of all harlots. Paul uses this Greek word some 21 times in his writings. Why was it being used? Well, the skeptics that Rick was talking about in his lesson, those who are trying to dismantle the Christian faith, would have you believe that Christianity was just simply borrowing their theology. I don't believe that to be the case at all. I believe that what was taking place here is just an effective means of communication. Effective communicators understand that you need to find some connector to bridge the gap between a topic and the audience that you're talking to. That's why I talked about Scooby-Doo at the beginning. 
It's a connector, right? Effective communication depends on these connectors. You've got to find a way to bring the topic and the audience together. And I think that that's what was happening among the Gentiles. That Paul was describing a concept that was true, but he was doing so in terms that they could understand. And I believe it goes right to the heart of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, pardon me, Paul says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I may save some. That was Paul's objective. He was trying to save souls. And if he could communicate an idea without compromising the truth that he had received from God, then he would use that means to get that idea across. That's what I take from his statement. Describing the gospel in such a way can help an audience understand. So let's take a look at an example. I've already referred to it just a little bit earlier. Over in the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, in verses 13 through 15, Jesus has just given the, the parable of the sower, and his disciples have come to him with the question, why are you teaching in parables? This must have been very unusual. Of course, Jesus, as we're told earlier, was a pretty unique, uh, pretty unique teacher. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 13, Jesus says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. Jesus is telling his apostles that he is withholding information from these people, not because he doesn't want them to know, not because he doesn't care about them, but because he knows the condition of their hearts. He knows they will not hear it, they will not accept it. So yes, there is this hidden knowledge, if you will, this mystery, and it's reserved for those who are initiated. If you go back just a couple of verses in verse 11, right after the disciples ask him the question, he says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Only the initiated could understand. Only the initiated were allowed into the inner circle, so to speak. Later on in verses 34 and 35, we see another feature of these mysteries. In verse 34, Matthew offers a commentary on why Jesus taught in parables. He felt it was necessary just to go on just a little bit further in his explanation. He said, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret, from the foundation of the world. 
hidden knowledge. Hidden knowledge that has resided in the mind of God. Knowledge that has been kept from mankind since the foundation of the world. This is another important feature of the New Testament's mysteries. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 saw himself as a steward of these mysteries. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses pardon me in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 Paul talks about how the mystery of the Gentiles being brought into a single body with the Jews how this mystery was entrusted to God's holy apostles and prophets that they spoke about these things taught about these things that these things had been revealed to them the initiated if you will and what had they done They had shared it with others. And as he says in Colossians chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, these hidden plans for the Gentiles were hidden from ages and from generations, but now they have been revealed to his saints. To his saints. The one thing I'd also like to notice in this passage is that there is a deep connection between these mysteries and the work of the prophets. Notice that Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 about the hearing they will hear but they will not understand, seeing and they will not understand. That's a quotation from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Matthew later in his explanation quotes from Psalm 78 verse 2. And if you notice in Matthew chapter 13 verse 16, after Jesus quotes Isaiah, he says this, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I read verse 17 and I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully searching out what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. You see, this knowledge had not just been restricted from the human realm. The angels didn't know about it either. They were curious about these things. It seems to me that Peter, as he's writing those words in that first chapter of 1 Peter, is not only doing so by the urging of the Holy Spirit, but is mindful of the very thing that Jesus said in his presence. Here in Matthew thirteen seventeen, Prophets have wanted to look into these things. They've wanted to understand it. They've been writing about it, but they didn't even get what they were writing. But now you have been brought in. You can understand what they did not. So what do we take away from this? Here we see the truth of Jesus couched in terms that a Gentile, a Greek or Roman could, could relate to. God possesses this hidden knowledge. God entrusts this hidden knowledge with men. Those men share that hidden knowledge with those in the know. And you see in all this a communion of man with the divine. This is what I believe the concept of the mystery means. Now we've already noticed the connection 
between the mystery and the prophets. And we find it not just here in Matthew 13, but we find it elsewhere. In fact, we talk about it a lot in our Bible classes, in our remembrance of the Lord's death. We talk about how the crucifixion of Jesus was something that God alluded to all throughout the Old Testament. We often read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 as we prepare our minds for the Lord's table. Well, brethren, those are little inklings of what was to come. Little allusions to the great mystery, and part of that mystery was Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, Paul talks about this. He's talking about the message of the cross, which Greeks have found to be foolishness. It's been a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's the wisdom of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Do you see that connection with Psalm 78 and 2 once again? Before the foundation of the world. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here is an excellent example, the very thing we've been talking about. Yes, we've got indications of the crucifixion of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. But the rulers of this age didn't understand. They were not in the know. They were not part of the inner circle. So we talk about this in terms of Jesus' crucifixion. Are there other instances? Well, I'm going to list a couple this afternoon. I'm quickly running out of time. I believe that one of the mysteries that we can see evidence of in the Old Testament is the bringing of Gentiles into the kingdom of God. We've already noticed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that Paul spoke about this mystery, that this was one of his missions as an apostle, to make this mystery known, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This is really the culmination of what he's been talking about in chapter number 2. In chapter number 2, he's talking about how Jesus at the cross has taken down the middle wall of separation, that wall which had separated Jew from Gentile, and the, the wall was the law, Right? And then he arrives in verse number 19 and he says, Now therefore we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together. When he's talking about being fitted together there, he means much more than us just getting along together. He's talking about the bringing together of nationalities and fitting them together into a temple. Because we're no longer strangers and foreigners. We're family. We're part of the household of God. And so he arrives in chapter 3 and he talks about how the Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the Jews. And this was part of the mystery. And we see evidence of it in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse number 10. Isaiah writes, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
Who is the root of Jesse? It's Jesus. Jesse is the father of David, and who is David the forefather of? Jesus. And it talks about him raising a banner, and that makes me think of what Jesus said. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And who would seek him out? Would it simply be the Jews that acknowledge that he was the Messiah? No. Isaiah says, the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Gentiles wanted to know about this man. This glorified man. In Hosea chapter 2 verse 23, a passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 verses 25 and 26. Hosea, who is a contemporary of Isaiah, is also a contemporary of Micah, who we're going to read in just a moment. Hosea writes, Then I will sow her for her... Pardon me, let me back up and start this again. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy... Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. Who are the people of God? Israel. People of the covenant. Who are those that are not God's people? All those that are outside the covenant. And God is looking forward to a time when those who have been outside the family are going to be brought in. I'll call them my people, and they will call me our God. This is a definite allusion, I believe, to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom. I don't have time to get to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, but I draw your attention to that passage as well. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and also its companion in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I believe point to the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, the Gentiles flocking to the mountain of the Lord to hear the truth that God would speak, that a law would go forth from Jerusalem out of Mount Zion, and that the Gentiles would come so that they could learn from God. Part of the initiates, if you will. So I turn your attention to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 in your own private study. But there's one final piece of the mystery that I want to be sure I talk about this afternoon. And that is the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And let's notice what Paul says to the church of Colossae whom he had not seen in the face. Or in the flesh, I should say. They had not seen his face in the flesh. That's how he puts it in verse number 1. In verse number 2, his desire for these people who have never met him, brethren that are in places like Colossae and Laodicea, and I would presume Hierapolis as well. In verse number 2, he says, his desire is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is saying, I want you people that I've never met to come to the fullest understanding that you can of this mystery. I want you to know it. And I don't want you to be tempted to look elsewhere. Because in God and in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Gnostics, the early Gnostics, were having an influence here at Colossae, and they were offering secret knowledge as well. 
It seems to me that underneath the surface, Paul is urging these brethren to remember that you don't need to look elsewhere. Everything you need to know is found in Jesus Christ. He is the consummation of this great mystery. Later on in verses 8 through 10, he, he begins his warning. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So let's just follow Paul's train of thought for a moment. Verse number 2, he prays that we might fully know the mystery. Verse 3, he says the knowledge that we receive through God and Jesus is fully sufficient. Verse number 8, he says don't get sidetracked by philosophy, by human tradition, by the basic principles of the world. Don't be distracted by those things. And why? Because in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I really appreciate a dear brother who brought this to my attention a few, minute, a few months ago. I know I've taught this in the past and I've been wrong to teach it this way. A lot of times we talk about the Godhead as being equal to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's not what Jesus is saying, pardon me, Paul is saying here about Jesus. The Greek word for Godhead is theotis. And it means the state of being God. The divine character in nature. Deity or divinity. If you're reading from the English Standard Version this afternoon, you're already way ahead of me. Because the English Standard Version says something to this effect. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells. What Paul is saying is, the part of this mystery that you need to cling to is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is part of the great mystery. And so as we think about the connection between the mystery we find in the New Testament and the prophets who were writing about these sayings so many centuries before, can we see indication in the Old Testament that Jesus would in fact be divine? I think we can find numerous examples in Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, in the very passage that the chief priest and scribes quoted to Herod when he asked, where is the Christ going to be born? This is the passage they quote. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now there's some dispute as to what that last Hebrew word means, but we see it used in other contexts with reference to Jehovah, and in those contexts it always refers to Jehovah being eternal. What are we being told in Micah chapter 5 verse 2? Well, that the Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem would be an eternal being. Not from the point that he was born forward, but rather that he has always existed. His goings forth are from old, from everlasting, is how the New King James puts it. The New American Standard says, from eternity, from the days of eternity. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, 
Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us. And I always think about just a couple chapters earlier in chapter 7, verse 14, about the child who would be born of a virgin and his name would be called Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. Almost coming back to that same idea in chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And I want you to notice that phrase, because one chapter later, in chapter 10, verse 21, that same title is used for Jehovah. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, or Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I believe this is the Messiah because it talks about the throne of David and that this throne would be occupied for the rest of eternity by this being. And how will he be known? in terms that are only appropriate to describe God. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Remember what Paul says in Colossians chapter 119, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. That in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. He is fully God and fully man. And we see this indicated, not only here, but in a couple other passages that I'm just going to have to give you because I run myself out of time. Zechariah chapter 12, notice verse 1 and verse number 10. And it's a fascinating passage. Because when you get to verse number 10, Jehovah who's doing the talking says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It's very interesting how the pronouns are used there. They pierced me and they pierced him. Who is Jesus? The New Testament writers make it plain. They believe that he is fully God and fully man. And we see that alluded to in the New Testament. One other passage, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. This is quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I leave that to you to investigate on your own. I'd like to close, though, this afternoon with what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. After enduring the questions of lawyers and Pharisees and Sadducees et al., Jesus finally turns the tables on them and asks, Who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? David calls him Lord. If he's the son of David, why does David call him Lord? You see, in the Jewish way of thinking, the son was always lesser than the father. Abraham was the greatest, not just because of his faith, not because of his obedience, but because he was the beginning of that family through Isaac and Jacob. The father is always greater than the children. So Jesus asked the question, why does David call his son Lord? And that's the question I leave before you this afternoon. Why is he called Lord? 
Well, because he has been obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, because he is the Son of God, because he died for your sins, and because we see him, not just in those 27 books of the New Testament, but scattered all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament enriches us not just simply by giving us good examples, it enriches us because it shows us a deeper, more meaningful understanding of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And now He calls you. He calls you to obey. He calls you to relinquish your life of sin, to stop living the way you want to live, and to live for the one who has died for you. The invitation is extended this afternoon as we stand and sing.